Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we get started with the news for this week, I want to make an announcement. Uh, Jay, we have an intern. That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, it's uh, a student of mine at the Northern Kentucky University, Christian Carey. And so welcome aboard, Christian. We're glad to have you as part of the team. And uh, so Christian will be helping us. Where's my copy? <laughs> exactly. Well, well, I think we'll try to make it a little more uh, engaging for him than that. But Christian's going to be helping us build up the Bipartisan Political Education Project, which is the nonprofit that we're transitioning into. And uh, the goal will be to kind of give you more uh, in-depth policy analysis from both the right and the left. And so I have Christian working on a project or two that, that uh, I think will help make that happen. So uh, again, welcome aboard. We're really glad to have our first official intern. There we go. All right. So we start today's show with the latest in the conflict between the FBI and a number of Republican not lawmakers, as well as President Trump. This week, the House Intelligence Committee voted to release a four-page memo detailing alleged FBI abuses related to the Russia investigation. The vote was along party lines, with all of the committee's Democrats voting to not release the memo, arguing that it posed a threat to national security of some sort. Now, committee Democrats were supported in this contention by the FBI, including Director Christopher Wray, who President Trump named to lead the agency that back in the summer. Uh, at the time, he called Wray uh, a man of impeccable credentials who would serve his country as a fierce guardian of the law and model of integrity. I wonder if he still thinks that. Anyway, well, um, as you point out, Trump's Trump's been wrong before. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, now Democrats <laughs> on the committee prepared their own rebuttal report, which the committee voted to not release. And this, again, was in a party line vote. Now, Democrats claim that this was done to silence any criticism, while Republicans say that the Democrats report, which uh, reportedly was over, is over twice as long as majority report, would have revealed sensitive information. Now, as everyone knows, the memo was released on Friday. I read it, and, and honestly, I was pretty underwhelmed after all that buildup. To me, it suggests that the, or wants us to be left with the impression that the FBI got their FISA warrant using, you know, somewhat questionable uh, evidence, to say the least. But the problem I have with this is that we don't know if that's the only evidence the FBI presented to court, because, of course, the underlying warrant application wasn't released, and these things tend to run 60 pages or more. Uh, and the FBI, of course, can't officially comment on this because any other material, aside from what's in the memo, was classified. And of course, the Democratic minority's rebuttal memo wasn't authorized for release. But on the other hand, it makes me question the FBI, the Justice Department, and others who claim that this would be somehow damaging to national security. I, I'm fully, I have no problem with the argument that it's cherry picking facts and potentially misleading. And that's something that, you know, Representative Schiff, who's the ranking minority member on the committee, uh, is arguing. Uh, and, and I should also mention that after the memo was released, Schiff posted a lengthy commentary on it, which he is on Twitter and various other places, and said he'd be calling for a vote to release a Democratic rebuttal on Monday, February 5th, and I certainly hope so, that comes so out. Let's, just just so, so I've got this straight, the Republican memo, uh, which is four pages and which uh, has been made public and which went through a, a scrubbing process, uh, we should add, before it was made public, 
Um, the Democrats are overly concerned and, and uh, were vehement that that memo should not be released because it would endanger national security. Uh, whereas now the Democratic memo, which is uh, allegedly is what we, what we understand to be twice as long, uh, uh, much more detailed, uh, must be released, uh, uh, but uh, will not uh, endanger any sort of national security. Um, just, just, just laying the that's that's well, where the me, playing field is sure. right now. L- right? Let me respond to that because I think it's only I think it's partially true. My understanding is that there are two arguments that are being made by the Democrats. One of them, I think, is very questionable, and the other one, I think, is less questionable. There's the argument that the release of this is somehow, in and of itself, damaging to national security in the sense that it reveals things that should not be revealed. And that, to me, based on my reading of the memo, seems highly unlikely. The only, now, the only information we know is that the FBI went to the FISA court uh, they used the dossier, at least in part, to obtain a FISA warrant, right. and that they uh, essentially spied on Carter Page. Right. But the second, the the second argument, and this is the one I think is is certainly more reasonable, is that uh, the release of this memo is it, uh, misleading and one sided and doesn't include important context. And I think that that you know that certainly seems reasonable to me. Well, no, I, fair enough. But there's sort of like it's sort of two different questions. Sure, absolutely. Um, no and, question. And I think the if if the here here's the thing. Look, if, and I, I like to to do this every now and again, just because if you've for those people who've actually played the game, um, this is how you play it. And and the Democrats are always so much better at it than Republicans. Although Republicans have been getting better, I have to say, in the last uh, last couple of months, particularly on this issue. But if I'm a Democratic lawmaker, uh, <laughs> what I put in the memo. Uh, I write my memo, which rebuts all these points, uh, and I do add all the national security stuff that makes it impossible to release, um, and thereby the Republicans don't release it, and then you get to say whatever you get to say uh, about, oh, look, they won't let it let it see the light of day. Now, I think the, the Republican response is, uh, let's let it all out, um, and I think that's that's probably the best thing for, for democracy, for uh, transparency, uh, my sense is whatever um, uh, sensitive information is in there uh, should be able to be scrubbed uh, or you know redacted, what have you. Um, but, but we'll see. Uh, let, let me ask you a more fundamental question, I guess, because I really want to get your take on this. Now, the House Intelligence, to start with, I'll say the House Intelligence Committee has every right to investigate the FBI. You know, you could even argue they have an obligation to do so when there's a question about the integrity of the agency. I, I, don't, I have no problem with that. I don't think anyone should have any problem with holding executive branch agencies accountable, right? Um, now, there's already a, a Justice Department inspector general's investigation going on, but you can make a that's case That's a different that, investigation yeah, on some different stuff. Exactly. And you can make an argument that having something that's being done by another branch is perhaps better and more legitimate. But here's, here's my question. Here's what I'm trying to understand from anything other than a politics standpoint. Why release a memo before concluding an investigation? I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand what end that serves other than a political end. And not only that, but it seems to me that uh, Devin Nunes should have at least reviewed the underlying information before he released a memo, which apparently he didn't do. And so that's what I don't get. I understand this as a political maneuver, but I don't understand what 
what interest is served, what public interest is served by releasing information about an ongoing investigation, certainly partial information about an ongoing investigation, how that helps anything but how that does anything but potentially, you know, cast aspersions, doubt on the FBI's integrity before an investigation is concluded. I, I don't get that. So maybe you can give me your take on that, Jay. Well, I think keep in mind a lot of the remedies that we have under our constitution, under our uh, under our you know trifurcated uh, government system, are political. Uh, they're not legal. It's not a matter of uh, you just go to court where you get this application or you get an order that says this or that. Um, I, I think what Nunes did is he put out enough information to justify uh, the continuance of this this investigation. And really, if you, if you just look at the, the facts that are are not in dispute on this, I, I mean, I can't imagine you've got to admit this is this is sort of troubling stuff. Well, hold on one second just before you get to that. When you say he put out enough information to justify the continuance of the investigation, I mean, it seems to me that that it doesn't need to be justified at all. I mean, that's part of the House sure Intelligence does. Committee's purview. They have they have the right to investigate any of that. So uh, again, it, I, I right, but but they do it. They do it in a uh, on the political playing field. And every night, the Democrats will get on TV. Adam Schiff will come out and say, "There's nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Why are we wasting money on this? This is ridiculous." Uh, the mainstream media will tend to repeat that. Um, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. It's all just a distraction from the real uh, collusion and and so forth. Um, so no, I, I think if he wants to keep investigating, he's got to to push back. Uh, he has to, or else he'll uh, be stopped. And he, and he is. I yeah. mean, who's gonna who's yeah. gonna who's gonna stop him? I mean, you know that that. See, I I really know well, we've well, talked the, about the, this. The people, no, like the people who will stop him uh, would be, you know, <laughs> let's let's put it this way: if the if the Democrats uh, were to take control of the House uh, next year, where do you think this investigation goes? Oh, I think it goes exactly the same way that the uh, that the House investigation of the Trump Russia thing goes. It becomes just a complete uh, a complete uh, I won't say a complete farce, but certainly it becomes you know the the, the it very much changes in terms if, of if the Adam vigor. Schiff becomes committee yeah, exactly becomes sure. chairman of the committee. Right, this goes away entirely. Uh, it's going to be a campaign issue. The Democrats will campaign on this. Uh, uh, that uh, this was this was all a, a just a distraction. Uh, so I, I think it's it's politically important to show. Look, this is something that's going on, and and the idea is if if Democrats just stonewall long enough, wait out the election, and and win, uh, win back the House, well, this all goes away. So I think this is the kind of thing where um, it's important to get get an update. And this is this is again we're talking about some facts that are not in dispute. Uh, about questions that have been asked for you know well over a year now, but that are also taken you know very much out of context. You know, I well, th I mean, that let's let's. I mean, I'm not sure how how do you how is it taken out of context if, if the I mean, this is was uh, I believe McCabe's testimony before the committee. It's it's verbatim testimony that he said there wouldn't have been a FISA warrant without the dossier. Right, I'm not I mean, right. That's, I'm that's not his context. I mean, right. I am not. I am not questioning. I'm not saying that the Republicans are are manufacturing facts. I'm I'm not I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that to understand 
if or, you know, whether or not that this warrant was a legitimate thing or whether it was based on evidence that was far too flimsy, the only way to really determine that is to have the same information in front of us that, uh, that, the, that the FISA court had. And we, of course, don't have that. And this is what really burns me up about this, not just this investigation, but the, uh, the, but the Mueller investigation as well. And I think, you know, that the leaks from that have been unconscionable. So I'm not, I'm not arguing this as a partisan issue at this point. You know, what I'm saying is that the, the, the media whips everyone into a frenzy about these little tidbits of whether it's leaked information or declassified information clearly set out to serve a political end. You have innuendo, partial truth, cherry picked facts. And, and my, my but view which, from, wait, which, let me, let me just finish. My right. view from the beginning has been, let's wait for these investigations to run their course. Let's take a look at the complete evidence that we have access to, and then let's reach some conclusion. I, you know, I am not, I do not have a predetermined conclusion about this. I'm willing to, I'm willing to go where the facts as I, you know, as they're presented to me, lead me. And so if the you know, the full set of facts suggests to me that the FBI is, is biased and incompetent at the highest levels. Well, then that's a problem, certainly. And I would accept that. And I think that that's what, you know, all of us should be willing to do. And, you know, I agree with Senator McCain, who in his statement just yesterday said, our nation's elected officials, including the president, must stop looking at this investigation through the warped lens of politics and manufacturing partisan sideshows. If we continue to undermine our own rule of law, we are doing Putin's job for him. Absolutely right, in my view. Oh, my gosh. The always helpful John McCain. Um, here's, here's, here's the thing, though. If, if, you're, if the let's wait it out till the investigation is complete, uh, that's, that's sort of like saying, um, to use a football metaphor, there's there's a minute and a half left on the clock, uh, and and uh, the other team has the ball and they're up by seven. Um, uh, you know, it, your would your plan be to you know to to vigorously try to get that that ball back, or there will try to wait and run out the clock, and that's the Democrat plan is is to wait and run out the clock so that this investigation is never concluded, doesn't see the light of day, or is concluded under the auspices of Adam Schiff, who will say, oh, See nothing, nothing to see there. Uh, it's all classified; it never goes away. And, and and I think this is really important for for people to understand that what we have here is we have evidence, and again, it's not contradicted evidence. I mean, if if someone wants to say, oh, it's it's cherry picked or there's other facts, okay, then then I I would agree those facts should be out there. But what it shows was you had a a a third party. Paid by the Democratic National Committee, uh, who received. Well, let me back up. You had a warrant issued, and again, this is from the uh, direct testimony of. Uh, and again, if I, if it's McCabe, if it's Ro Rosenstein instead of McCabe, I apologize to to, to whomever. But uh, uh, from their their testimony to the committee, to the you know both of them, uh, both both sides of the committee, if not for the dossier, the warrant would not have been issued. So that then, so that makes it that sort of takes whatever the other evidence is out there that that makes it a little less relevant, if not entirely irrelevant. I disagree. I disagree because that's certainly one one statement from one person, but that's not the person. But he's. But but wait, hold person, on, hold on. That's the person that's, who went to get the warrant. But that's not the person who made the decision on the warrant. So you know, 
Do right. we know if that's a, my point is? And so, in one sense, let's, you and I agree. This way. The the FBI would not have felt that it had enough evidence to go to the court without the warrant maybe, or without the without maybe the maybe not. I need to, I say. need to see that to to make that conclusion. But I I understand your point. But I think that one area, at least in this, where we generally disagree, one area we do agree is that if facts are going to come out, then as many relevant facts as possible should be put out there as long as they don't endanger national security Absolutely. anyway. Okay, Absolutely. well, there you go. At least we... And, and the and the endanger in national security should, I think, be that. Uh, the, the, the test that is always is the Supreme Court promulgated in, I want to say, 73, um, with the Pentagon Papers, that unless this you know would pose a clear and present danger uh, to the United States, it ought to come out. And I, you know, and, and my sense, my sense is that this none of this uh, the information relating to the investigation of the mysterious uh, Carter Page uh, would pose that sort of uh, danger. Well, and, and and there you go. And I, I like I said, I while I disagree with the idea of releasing tidbits of, invest, of information as an investigation is ongoing. I do agree with you that if, in, if information is going to be released, it needs to be as full of a picture as possible. And we'll see, you know, we'll certainly see what happens next week with the, with the Democrats rebuttal memo. And uh, I, yeah, I have, I have to push just one, one little last question for you though. I mean, aren't, aren't you troubled? I mean, hypothetically, if, if this is true, and again, the facts that we've seen are not, uh, contradicted, there may be perhaps additional facts or, or, or spin to go with them, but that a FISA warrant to spy on an American citizen uh, was granted and used and renewed multiple times based on evidence that is, is at best yeah. sort of like third-hand hearsay yeah. from a foreign government. Yeah, let me, let me just, uh, let me, let me put- Paid for by political opponents. Sure, I mean, let me, is, yeah. let me say unequivocally, okay, Jay? If that is the fundamental basis of that FISA warrant, I think that is a serious problem. I think that that, that casts a very negative light on uh, both the FISA court and the FBI. And I would, have, I would have some grave reservations to me. Again, if that's pretty much it, that's a huge problem. And that does call into question the, uh, uh, the integrity of some of these people. So absolutely, yes. Okay. All right. Um, all right, before we move on, we would like to thank our first sponsor today, and that is Policy Genius. You know, February is the shortest month of the year. You are aware of that, Jay. I am. Yeah, yeah it's a very short month, uh, sometimes a little longer. But anyway, that can make it really hard to fit in all the things you need to do this month. But if one of those things you need to do is get life insurance, and hey, if you don't have life insurance, you definitely should take care of that. You are in luck. Because instead of calling a whole bunch of insurance companies for a quote or looking all over the internet, you can compare quotes at policygenius.com. PolicyGenius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance online. They let you compare quotes in minutes and they save you money too. In fact, PolicyGenius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just insure life, they insure everything in your life. You can compare health insurance, disability insurance, renter's insurance, even pet insurance. They got it all. So if you're struggling to fit in 31 days worth of stuff into 28 days, save time by comparing life insurance online with Policy Genius. There's no sales pressure and zero hassle. You can get quotes in five minutes. PolicyGenius.com, because if you need life insurance, it shouldn't take a lifetime to get it. Okay, moving on, Jay. So let's talk a little bit about 
the State of the Union. You know, President Trump gave his first uh, official State of the Union address last week, uh, calling for the unity we need to deliver for the people we were elected to serve, as well as formally announcing his immigration plan and calling for $1.5 trillion to spending on infrastructure over the next decade. Now, we'll talk about the immigration and infrastructure proposals in a little bit, but for now, I was just wondering, what did you think about the State of the Union in general? Well, uh, true, true confession, I didn't watch the whole thing. Um, and you understand why. And <laughs> you well, I, I point out that this has been, that President Trump's speech was the longest since uh, Bill Clinton in the 90s. So, uh, which, was, which was, yeah, record setting yeah. back then. And yeah. Two men who love, love the sound of their own voice, you know, that's, yeah, a, yeah absolutely. Um, I, I, I am disappointed. You know, the, the typical, you know, the, the first line, as you say, the state of our union is strong. And I was really hoping he would say uh, the state of our union is, is absolutely terrific. <laughs> that would have been, <laughs> it would have been it's much more fun. But um, no, I would say generally, as as Trump speeches go, this was one of his better ones. Uh, he he pretty much stuck to the script. Um, I, I posted on the uh, on the, the Facebook page. I mean, it's one of those you, you just never know. I mean, maybe he'd talk about immigration and infrastructure, or it could have been about Rosie O'Donnell. Um, sure. you know, so so I, I'd say he he stuck to the script. He did a a generally a, a pretty good job and said what he needed to say. Um, so I, I liked it. Uh, you and I, I mean, I think we can maybe have a quick digression, just state of the unions in general. Oh, God, I hate them. Yeah, it's it's a little bit I, I also had, had mentioned, which I thought was sort of a, a brilliant uh, uh, simile. It's it's like um, it's like the pro bowl, pro bowl of politics. Yes. Oh, that's great. Yes. In that, that. And it is like, look, all the all the famous people are there. All the big shots are there. But but it's sort of a game that doesn't really matter. And everyone knows it doesn't really matter. And, and it's a horrible game to watch. Um, so, you know, but, but it's, it's something that we do anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I also wanted to mention, uh, that, that even more pointless maybe than the state of the union is the, uh, is the opposition party's response. And this year, the Democrats choose Joe Kennedy. Now I'll say that he is in terms of ideology and voting record, he's kind of middle of the road for a Democrat, but, but a 37 year old multimillionaire heir to a liberal political dynasty that goes back like over 80 years. That's, that's the person you pick. That, <laughs> I don't really, Oh, not God. that it matters. He had, he, had, but, he had a wonderful, he had a wonderful line and I, I don't have it in front of me. Um, something about the, uh, this country shouldn't be, you know, for those who were, you know, the, the privileged and so forth. It's for, and, and again, it just, um, yeah, well, yeah. Does, does anyone even read this stuff before they say it? Um, but again, yeah. it, it will be, it will all be forgotten by everyone except for the true political sort of uh, geek maniac type of folks. You know, these things. Uh, not, not even that. I would say, I mean, I, let's, let's, because I was thinking about this also of, and maybe readers can write in of, of state of the union speeches that were memorable or that, that really mattered. Um, I, I can think of one, and that would be George W. Bush right after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and, and again, maybe less for any you know, particular policy thing, but, but just for showing national resolve and so forth, um, and, and you know, in an emotional moment. Um, beyond that, um, Didn't I think Clinton back give to one? the— Didn't Clinton give one that was split-screen with the OJ thing, the, the, the white Bronco sort of thing? I seem to recall that. <laughs> Anyway. Well, because the white Bronco thing was in in uh, 
in the in the summer though. And okay, well, it was, it was a big but anyway. But the point is that the fact that you and I, who follow politics very closely and care about this, I mean, about you know policy and so forth, yeah. you know, that it's it is, and we can blame we can blame if you're if you're a conservative, you'll love this. We can blame Woodrow Wilson, the who all you know, true oh, conservatives do. just yes. hate with a, the fiery passion of a thousand sons because he was the one who sort of revived the tradition of making this a speech as opposed to just a letter you'd send in every once in a while. And uh, uh, so there you go. Another thing that uh, a conservative can blame Woodrow Wilson for. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, my, my, uh, I'm sorry. My no. only other uh, outstanding um, State of the Union memory would be uh, Obama admonishing the Supreme Court, uh, which again, just because it's out of the ordinary and sort of shocking. And, and also, if, if it wasn't that same State of the Union speech, I think it might have been the one before when uh, whoever yelled, uh, you, you lie. lie. Yeah. <laughs> so again, that's the sort of thing that it's you remember not, you know, so much the message or what happened, but sort of the bizarre highlights that, that attended. Exactly. Exactly. You know, before we get to the actual substance, uh, and there were a few substantive policy proposals uh, in the State of the Union, we'd like to thank our newest supporters this week. And we have a... Uh, we have a number of them. Uh, first off is, uh, let's see, we have Jake, Becca, and Brian, all new Patreon sustaining supporters. Now, Jake writes, uh, hey, gents, I never do this kind of thing, but wanted to take a minute to thank you for what you're doing. I am an Oregonian who has been living in Germany for about 16 years now. Like most masochistic people nowadays, I am completely addicted to the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, he says, Mike and Jay, you are a breath of fresh air in political discussion. As an American living abroad, I am constantly asked by people to explain American policy and culture. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Um, uh, specifically, immigration. Yeah. <laughs> he says, specifically, immigration and gun control are always topics where people can't understand the American perspective. Your program helps a lot for me to empathize with differing political opinions and be able to offer much more thoughtful responses than simply saying what I personally agree with. Mike, you even managed to calm my trembling rage of the tax bill by offering some of your insight into what was not so bad. Too often, right and left scream past one another and no one hears the other. Keep up the great work. The donation isn't much, but I suppose every bit counts. Absolutely, it does. And it, thank you, know, you so much. And yeah. Thank you for the kind words. Too. Yeah, and then he that, say, that actually makes a big difference too. Yes, without a doubt. And then he closes by saying, "Keep making me sound smart at the dinner table." Well, we will do our best, Jake. Thank you. Uh, next is Brian, who lives in Redline, Pennsylvania, and he writes, "I just wanted to thank you for what you do on your podcast. With the current climate being so ridiculously partisan." It's incredibly refreshing to hear an attempt at open-minded, nuanced discussion. My personal political history has been all over the map. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania being two big blue cities swimming in a sea of red, and it only ever met a handful of Democrats before college. But for the last decade and a half, I've shifted further and further left from my conservative roots, at least on a lot of issues. Good for you, Brian. Uh, I've been registered as a Republican and a Democrat and have at times voted Green and Libertarian. All this is to say that my views are complex, nuanced, not easily pigeonholed, and hopefully constantly evolving. One of the things I like most about your show is that it keeps me on my toes. All three of you often have somewhat surprising views on specific issues, and if nothing else, 
that causes me to look a little closer at my own positions to question my assumptions, which I think is an incredibly healthy activity. And in the current partisan climate, it's amazing that you guys can hold such disparate beliefs and yet still hold a civil and productive conversation with each other where you sincerely try and understand each other's positions. We need more of this in general. And so I'm proud to support your podcast through Patreon. Keep up the good work. Keep challenging us by challenging yourselves. Thanks for all you do. Oh, now, thank you very much. Yeah, that was that was really nice. And, you know, one point that Brian makes that I think is really important. One of my sort of uh, acid tests for whether or not a a columnist is worth following or anyone is kind of that I listen to for political information and insight on is if I can predict exactly what they're going to say on every issue before they say it, then they're pretty much useless to me, you know? And, and so I think that is important because the people whose views surprise you occasionally, I think those are the people who are actually thinking about these things and not just sort of regurgitating whatever the, the party or ideological line is, you know? And I, I think you probably would yeah. agree with that, right, Jay? I do, I do, yeah. Okay, and, and then there's, there's this from Mark. When Mark became a supporter not too long ago, but I missed his message at the time. Sorry about that, Mark. Um, so he writes... Just wanted to reply to your most episode, uh, most recent episode, Politics Guys versus Diversity. He said, your listener mail was awful, and I wanted to compliment the work you do. Uh, I love that you are both centrist like me, sometimes a little to the left, sometimes a little to the right. I like it when you bring in the guests like Joe, who gives a totally different perspective, but I equally like to listen to the internal banter. I feel like I learned something every episode and just wanted to give you guys a compliment. Happy to give my little bit of financial support and happy to share your episodes with select people when relevant to conversations had. Keep up the great oh, work. Thank you very much. Yeah. That means a lot, too, that you share it with folks. And yeah, Absolutely. You know, I also wanted to point out, this is our very last week with, uh, with ads. After our Wednesday show, we are going ad-free for every episode because we know that's what you all want. And, uh, but that means, of course, your support is what will really keep us going. And so if you'd like to join, let me see if I get everyone's name here. Jake, Becca, Brian, Mark, and our other great Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. All right, moving on. So, you know, one of the things that uh, President Trump talked about in his State of the Union address was immigration, right? And his immigration plan, we'd seen parts of this before come out, but just to kind of recap, it has four basic components. The first is a path to citizenship for not only the 700,000 or so current dreamers, but also people who qualify for the program but aren't currently part of it. And that's a total that comes out to around 1.8 million. The second part is tougher border security, including $25 billion for border wall expansion. Third is an end to the diversity visa lottery. And fourth is a major reworking of the family reunification visa program, which Republicans prefer to call the Chain, my chain migration program. I, That's under, what we call it. Yeah, understandably, it's a lot easier to be against chain anything than against family reunification. So that just makes <laughs> sense from a messaging standpoint, right? I mean, it's kind of the same logic that turned the estate tax into the death tax. It just, you know, makes sense for the optics of it. But that's that's another story. Anyway, um, Jay, what do you think about this proposal? Um, look, I generally, um, I think this is a good, good starting point. And I think it's, it's, uh, it lays out the potential compromise, um, setting aside, let's set aside the, the, uh, um, uh, chain migration and the lottery, because those are sort of separate issues. Um, but the two bigger pieces, 
the Dreamers and border security. I mean, I think this there's a deal in the making there, right? Uh, and I think it's an it's an easy deal for for Republicans, and it's a tougher pill to swallow for Democrats. So uh, I think I think you did good laying that out there. Uh, obviously, the devil's in the details, um, but uh, Democrats who have who have been, you know, let's let's put it this way, all all in against any sort of wall, any sort of border security. Um, I think they've they're going to be in a tough position if it's look where you're going to you're going to sort of uh, betray the the dreamers and so forth who we've got a deal on and this wouldn't be the first time this has happened um, uh, because you want essentially less border security that's a tough uh, political position to to hold um, on the the um, lottery uh, uh, migration I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of of a mixed mixed mind on that I'm I'm not sh- I'm not sure where I come down. So I don't know if that qualifies me as to sort of the, uh, you didn't see where I was coming from that. Cause I'm not sure. I'm not trying to know where I'm coming from. Cause I've, I've read things on both sides. On the, on the one hand, the idea that our immigration system, uh, is based in part on just sort of a randomness of, uh, well, we want so many from this country, so many people from this country, uh, and let's literally have a lottery uh, to see who comes over, that that seems to me to be sort of a, a irrational way to run an immigration policy. Um, that said, uh, I also see the argument that there are a lot of folks who have come here through that um, uh, that type of lottery program and and done incredible things. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess I'm 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 troubled by now. Would would those people have not come here but for uh, that lottery program, and would there be a better way to to get them in? And I, I don't know, because in in a lot of cases, the folks who who came here were not uh, didn't have any particular skills or accomplishments, or or uh, uh, were Norwegian or or anything like that. They might somehow distinguish them, um, uh, but but yet they they prospered uh, and to the benefit of themselves, their families, and and the rest of the country. Um, so that's uh, where I am on that. And I think that's that's a that's a tougher. A tougher question. Yeah, I, um, you know, I I agree with you. Uh, the first thing you were talking about in terms of the politics of it, I, I think you're right. You know, for one thing, I think the the Republicans were who put this plan together. Whoever in President Trump's administration did this, I'm assuming he didn't. You know, sit down with a bunch of number two pencils and a piece of paper. But uh, I think it's really smart because they they've been able to pitch this as a huge compromise for Republicans. I mean, but it's not, it's a huge compromise for certain people like Tom Cotton and, and Stephen Miller and so forth. But for most Republicans, it's not because the one thing there's huge bipartisan agreement on and huge public support for is uh, giving the, giving, allowing the dreamers to stay in the country. Right. And so the brilliant politics of this is saying, well, we'll give even more on that, right? Not just the current dreamers, but and we'll put in, we'll throw in a path to citizenship. That's not a huge concession, but what they're asking for in return is obviously huge for the Democrats. So I think you're absolutely right. It puts the Democrats in a difficult position, but then you throw in those other two things that aren't really related as much as you pointed out, you know, the uh, family reunification program and the diversity lottery. And migration. Yeah. And, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think that is going to make it a lot harder to come up with a deal. You know, certainly I can understand why Democrats just want a clean vote on the dreamers. They're not going to get that, right? I think that's fairly safe to say. But 
You know, I've thought about this as well, uh, and I, you know, I wrote a, a blog post on it uh, just last week, or I think last week, about you know maybe maybe it's time to bend a little bit on the wall. If it is, it's that worth 1.8 giving you know 1.8 million dreamers a, a path to citizenship. I, you know, I have huge issues with the wall for a lot of reasons, but you know, I think that's there's a negotiation there. Now, when you get into the the I also think, and this maybe is where I will sound like people wouldn't have necessarily expected this, you know, I think there maybe is some wiggle room on the family reunification visa program. I think making it like right now, now that, that President Trump made it sound like basically if you have a fourth cousin or something like that, you can bring that person on his program. That's just not true. It's, uh, you know, it's spouses and spouses and siblings, essentially. But but the thing is, is, you know, obviously you can kind of see how the chain, as you will, forms from that. But making it spouses and minor uh, children, I think that kind of, I can sort of see that as I think that's an easy sell. Yeah. You know, so again, this isn't like this crazy radical type of thing, at least from, from my perspective. The only part of it that I, that I have some issues with is the diversity visa lottery because like you i think you know diversity can be a very good thing and having that kind of element in there of bringing people in not necessarily because it's economically useful and you know this gets into what's the purpose of uh immigration you know why do we let people in if we just do it because we're looking to specifically improve our economic performance well we have one kind of a program but that's not historically been what America's all about. I mean, historically, it's, you know, well, there have been big, big times when we haven't had this, but, you know, you can make a case for much more open um, immigration. In fact, Trey did that on a Facebook post. Trey actually suggested, well, let's just open the doors to pretty much everyone except for people that, you know, are, are carrying their, you know, uh, ISIS cards, essentially. Yeah, and, that's a bad idea. You know, I, and I, Sorry, I, Trey. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as Trey, but I think, <laughs> you know, I can understand what he's getting at kind of fundamentally there. and. I think it would be interesting. You know, one uh, one uh, listener uh, posted on Facebook said, "You know, we need to talk about immigration in a broader context, like the distinction between legal and illegal. Uh, if there Amen. are if there are caps, what those caps should be at, what kind of selection criteria we should have." And that's a longer conversation. I think certainly we haven't heard the end of this. We might want to do an entire show on that. I think that would be really interesting. Well, I guess you know if you think about the the, the diversity lottery. Again, to me, that's the problem for me is um, if you're looking for people who really want to come here and for people who bring certain skills, um, the, I mean, I'm not sure what the the national interest in is in saying, uh, okay, we have diversity and representation from this many particular countries. Uh, I understand there's there's sort of a, a good feeling, warm and fuzzy uh, thing, uh, and but you know Trump made this the statement and he was much maligned for it. Uh, but you know he said, "Do we really need more Haitians?" And setting aside Haitians, this isn't a, a, a rap on them or, any, or or anyone else. But is is that is that sort of how our national policy ought to be run? Of, of people uh, sitting around in Washington saying, "Well, you know what? We need more of this and less of this, and and more of these people and less of these people from these countries and than those countries." Um, you know. And to me, it comes up, well, why? <laughs> so um, 
you know, we, we have typically welcomed uh, particularly those uh, who, who come here from, um, you know, back in the day, uh, the communist world, uh, the second world. Um, and, and there was there was part of our immigration program that's separate that's, you know, allowed for refugees and people fleeing uh, uh, political oppression. Um, and to me, that 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 part is still important. And that's again, that's separate and apart from from the diversity. Um, uh, uh, lottery, but I, you know, I, I guess that's. I'm still, you know, I think it's diversity is valuable to have. But do we? I guess my question is, do we get there naturally uh, by selecting, you know, people and skill sets as opposed sure. to it's, X think, number of people from this country yeah, or that country? I think it's absolutely an important question. So maybe, maybe we'll do a, an entire show on that or a bigger segment. I think that might be worthwhile. You know, but before we move on and talk about infrastructure, we want to thank our second sponsor for today, and that is SeatGeek. You know, buying tickets to sporting events or concerts can be a real hassle, but it doesn't have to be. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're searching for, you know, a last minute deal, planning a big night out, or looking for a really nice gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed. I've used the SeatGeek app myself a bunch of times, and it is by far the easiest way I found to shop for tickets. You know, you can be anywhere and just a few taps, boom, instantly find seats. In fact, just yesterday, I used SeatGeek to find great tickets for Jerry Seinfeld, who I've loved for, geez, I'm old, decades, I guess it's at this right. point, you know, it's, <laughs> it's God. Anyway, um, and, and best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's right, 20 bucks off. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, um, so Jay, I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure. Now, President Trump didn't release a full infrastructure plan, but he talked about it. It's clearly going to be a focus of uh, of this this time he has, you know, with a unified Republican control of Congress until January of 2019, please. Um, but anyway, the, the president called for legislation that would result in around one and a half trillion dollars in new infrastructure spending over the next decade. And details are supposed to come in the next couple of weeks. Now, what we know at this point is that most of that one point five trillion wouldn't come from the federal government under the president's plan. That, that calls for, we're told, around $200 billion in federal money, which will be used to encourage states and the private sector to come up with the rest. So in other words, the federal government's going to, under this plan, put up around, yeah, 13%. And somehow, I don't know how, states and the private sector are going to come up with 87%. Good luck with that. So um, what's your, I just was, you know, we'll talk more about this in detail as we have, as we get details, but I was wondering what your take is on this as sort of a general outline, at least. The general outline, and I think this is, this is where Trump actually sort of adds value um, because this, this is sort of his wheelhouse, right? I mean, building stuff. Uh, and I see this very much as a, this is, this is a Donald Trump, the developer making the, you know, first opening, you know, bid in the negotiation, uh, saying, all right, federal government, will give you, we'll give you a 13% and, you know, you guys got to kick in the rest and, uh, he will await the counter offer. Um, so I, you know, I, I think, I think it's, I think it's good. I, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea that the federal government spend less and, and more of that flow to the. Uh, those expenses flow to the private sector or to states or local governments who, and again, 
you know, if you follow the money, sort of <laughs> they get their money then from the federal government in a lot of, you know, through different various programs. But um, look, I think infrastructure is one of those uh, bipartisan winner sort of issues. Um, Republicans, you know, while they are are hesitant on spending, and while all these projects always cost more than they ought to, and 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 take longer than they should, and all that, uh, it is something that we need, and it's something that Republicans generally regard as uh, this is a a right and proper function of the of the government. Yeah, the problem um, the problem, of course, is as you point out, is paying for. It. You know, either we get the money from the Chinese and the Japanese at around two percent interest. Uh, or, or we pay for it ourselves, I guess, or some combination uh, of that, you know. And and I think the problem has been that we have been unwilling to do anything except ask the Chinese and the Japanese, who you know a lot of people think that the Chinese own like all of our all of our debt, but the Japanese own just about as much. I mean, they're a close number too. But the point is, is that's how we've been funding so much. And I think that's a problem, especially when you take a look at uh, the the federal gas tax. Now, President Trump earlier suggest that he might be open to considering this. I mean, right now it's 18.4 cents a gallon. It's been that way for the last 24 years. And I think, number one, that should be indexed to inflation for a start. Um, and also, this isn't like some crazy left-wing thing. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has proposed a major increase in the federal gas tax to 25 cents per gallon because they understand that, inf- that better infrastructure is huge for promoting Growth, and so I think that that same sort of logic that Republicans use to talk about how tax cuts promote promote growth, you can use that similar sort of logic that this is an investment that will actually lead to greater growth. You know, and so the question is, where do we get the money for this investment? Well, I actually would rather we not have to pay the Chinese and the Japanese two percent interest on you know, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're talking about a trillion dollars, all of a sudden that does actually add up. I would rather we paid for it ourselves by having some reasonable increases in taxes and setting up a system so that we not only get our infrastructure up to a reasonable point, but that we put it on sustainable footing. This shouldn't be a periodic crisis that we have to deal with. Well, I think there, there's some, some things that and if you understand the way um, these things are, are funded, too, that one, this is a reason Republicans and Democrats both like it, is because uh, infrastructure investments are amortized, uh, meaning they are paid off over years and years and years. It's not one big hit. Uh, and, you know, the way that when we say that the Chinese own this debt or the Jap- Japanese own this debt, the way that comes about uh, is, is, is that the, you know, United States uh, or whatever local government is, is building this issues bonds. And then those bonds are purchased by uh, whomever. Um, it's it's not necessarily it's it's a different it's a different scenario. It's not like uh, you know we go to China and say, hey, can yeah. we borrow this much? Sure. You know, it's, it's not like yeah. you sit down with the banker or something like that. Um, and so, you know, and, and in many ways, they 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 buy these bonds because they're good investments. Uh, they're stable investments. Um, now, maybe there there could For be now. ulterior motives too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that uh, they want to have more leverage, but uh, I think that's that's important. And when you talk about uh, gas tax receipts funding it, uh, part of the problem is those gas tax receipts don't come in all at once, and they are a little um, less uh, reliable than than uh, knowing you have the one big sure. chunk of money yeah. that that Good comes point. from a bond offering. 
Good point. Um, you know, I uh, wanted to ask you about something about gas taxes. You know, it seems to me that there's an important difference between uh, general purpose taxes, I guess I'd call them like income taxes, whether they're individual or corporate, and specific purpose taxes like the gas tax, which goes, you know, to the highway trust fund. And, and I actually have some sympathy for the, for the kind of conservative argument that taxes, tax dollars are wasted by the government. But it seems to me you can make a better case for a very purpose-specific tax. You know, I don't think they should really be seen in the same way. Not oh, I tech. think so. Okay, okay. I, I think so. No, and, and, and I've, you know, in my past life, I've, I've been one of these people who, who've made that argument and worked for people who've made that argument. Uh, that the idea is, look, if you have uh, one tax in, or, or one revenue source, let's, let's call it, uh, and it is dedicated to this certain uh, thing and it goes into this lockbox and, you know, it all gets paid for education or it all gets paid for highways or something like that. Uh, that's good because it it takes some of the politics out of how this is all divvied up. Yeah, and that, you know, uh, so and I think that, there's a good argument there. Now, the the counter argument is that there have to be sort of safeguards uh, in there to to assure because money is fungible. Uh, that that it's not a matter of uh, you know, for example, if you look at the Social Security Trust Fund, um, you know, the way we we fund that is we don't really we don't really fund it. It's all sort of there's a bunch virtual. of IOUs, you know, in the yeah. lockbox essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that money is is then just redirected for use other other places. So it depends on how you set up the the program. I think the the highway tax, the highway funds, is a, a more secure. And if someone's got more details than I do, which probably you, someone probably does, uh, they should yeah feel free to chime in on that. But my sense has always been there is more of a direct uh, payment uh, for the guy. And again, probably because you can tie it to the the bond payments and so. You know, and, and that to me, kind of the broader issue is, I think it, I think it's reasonable and, and even I agree to a certain extent, I'm not to a certain extent, I agree entirely with being anti-government waste, uh, anti, uh, you know, casually throwing away tax dollars. Who wouldn't be against that? But, but the idea of just being anti-tax full stop, it matters so much what the taxes are and how they're being used. So, and I'm, I'm glad that you and I are in agreement on that. So, well, and to me, to me, again, the, the, um, at the end of the day, it's sort of, if you spend the money on a highway, even if you probably pay too much for it and it takes too long, uh, you still have a highway. Uh, whereas opposed to a lot of these other uh, other priorities, if we're going to spend uh, X amount in, uh, let's say, foreign aid, because that's an easy one to beat up on, even though I know it's not that much. Tiny you man. know, what do you what do you get at the end of the day? If if it's the CDC is going to conduct more research on gun violence or something like that, what do we have at the end of the day? Now, this uh, this isn't you calling for us to cut foreign aid to our biggest recipient, Israel, though. No, no. no. I'm, I'm, I'm using <laughs> right. this as, no, no, as an yeah. example I understand of someone who yeah. could say. Where is the where is the tangible payoff of that government expenditure versus the tangible payoff of oh there's the bridge absolutely they fix the bridge yeah yeah all right well and I'm sure we'll have more on this when we get details on the plan I I'm a I'm a huge uh, infrastructure sort of uh, wonk sort of person so I'm really looking forward to that uh, anyway. So it is time for what we're reading, where we step back, you know, and talk a little bit about the more in-depth sort of thoughtful things we're reading, listening to, watching, what have you. And so this week, I want to recommend something about, well, the State of the Union. Uh, There's an article called TV Gave Us the Modern State of the Union, Then It Killed It, and it kind of goes into a some of the history of the State of the Union, you know, kind of a staple thing for this time of year. I thought it was kind of a, an interesting read. 
Uh, also, I should mention uh, this week my blog post is, is, is college worth it? The case against education. Um, yeah, I know you wouldn't think I would, I would say that, but basically there's a book coming out by a guy named Brian Kaplan, an economist. I had him on the show. I interviewed him on the show in November of 2016, and he wrote this book called The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and money, and that got me thinking about education. So I wrote this thing, and then I, I uh, got in contact with, with uh, Brian, and he said he'd be happy to come on the show. And I said, well, okay, I should probably read your book first. So uh, I'm going <laughs> to do that. And well, you know, a lot of times interviewers don't even bother to read the book. Uh, so I try, I really actually try to do that. I like to think it matters. But anyway, uh, we're setting up the details. So hopefully he'll be on the show sometime in early to mid-March. But until then, hope you take a look at the, uh, at the blog post. So Jay, All what right. do you have? Well, what I've got, and and this is, again, there are a lot of interesting things I read over the past uh, week or so, but this always comes down to, um, I get my Saturday Wall Street Journal, you know, and I sort of look through it right before the show, and then I'm like, wow, that's really good. And and so I'm sort of, that's why I tend to to pick this. But anyway, in the Wall Street Journal weekend interview, uh, it is Jason Willick's interview with historian Gordon Wood. Uh, and the title is uh, Polarization is an Old American Story. Although the, the headline, um, as, as you read this, a lot of it is actually uh, Gordon Wood talking about the state of, of our history and the historical study uh, uh, for good and for bad. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's one of these kind of things that I like, and I think it's particularly good for the what are you reading, where it gives a bigger perspective. Uh, and he, he talks about... Um, uh, again, the polarization of, of our country uh, now uh, is really not nearly as bad as it has been in the past, uh, with particularly, he's looking at the election of 1800. Um, so I, I, again, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it, it's, it's one of these, he, he talks about how the, the study of history is, you know, they're sort of fads. Uh, and uh, uh, there's, there's mention of, of a, an exchange from the, the movie Goodwill Hunting. Um, where Gordon Wood is, is sort of mentioned and alongside with, with Howard Zinn and uh, Wood sort of laments the, the rise of sort of the Howard Zinn school uh, uh, to the exclusion of, of, uh, of, of, I guess, the Gordon Wood school. Um, but uh, anyway, it's, it's, I think it was really fascinating and, and fun and, again, puts things, puts our national moment a little bit into perspective. Perspective, I'm all for perspective. perspective. So, yeah. There was the one, hold on, let me, let me find the, um, he has one great line here that 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 for one thing he I mentioned this is the interview saying that a lack of historical perspective can lead to apocalyptic thinking about the present. Apocalyptic thinking about the present, boy. And that's that does, that's something that's something again that that is is big for me. That so often uh, we move quickly to apocalyptic thinking. Um, well, it's uh, fun. That, uh, you know, well, yeah. love some apocalyptic thinking. It sells papers. Well. Nancy Pelosi's. Yeah. This is the worst bill in the history of America, and you know, this, or, I think or, she actually used the word apocalypse. Yeah, or, or the uh, <laughs> or the the Steve King, the the Republican memo is bigger than Watergate. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I would agree that that could be. That's not actually apocalyptic. That's saying big. Um, but but my point is, yes, there are lots of things that have happened in American history. Lots of things uh, are are bigger than what's happening now. So. Uh, so take a deep breath. Yeah, absolutely. No question. All right. Well, I think, you know, before I, we're kind of running a little long, but I have one final sort of totally non-political thing to throw out there for listeners. Uh, just, I'm looking for some assistance actually, uh, not another intern or anything like that, but I am actually considering 
roasting my own coffee. And I understand it's simple and easy to do with a popcorn popper. And so I'm wondering, folks, if any of you have had any experience with doing this, if you have horror stories, tips, whatever, let me know, because I'm sort of I'm curious about this, but I don't want to destroy, you know, burn down the house or anything like that. So let me know what your experiences are. If you have any thoughts about, about that. I'm assuming it'll be some sort of fair traded coffee, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't do yeah, anything right. else without a doubt. Um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, let me know. You can just mike at politicsguys.com and I want to hear all about your experiences. Okay, that does it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you like what you heard. And you'll check out today's sponsors. First is PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance online. And SeatGeek, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY. You know, listener support is going to be more important to us now than ever. And so if you'd like to help out, go to politicsguys.com, click on the Patreon or PayPal links, uh, and there you go. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, if, or if you're already a supporter, you can share this episode with your friends, followers, or you guys should share it with your enemies, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. That does help, as does leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. And if you want to get, get in touch with us, it's mail at politicsguys.com. And there's our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post all kinds of stuff throughout the week. There's obviously a big, long, fascinating back and forth on this Nunes memo thing, for instance, that's facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.